Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Not a long chapter. We'll do all of it this morning. Uh, 13 verses. Difficult chapter. If I were a betting man, I would say that the odds are very low that in all the tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of churches gathered across the world on a Sunday like today, a, a very, very small number of them, no more than a very small number of them, are teaching on a subject like this. That's not to condemn any church that is not teaching on a subject like this on a given Sunday. There's certainly lots in the Bible that we should pay attention to and devote ourselves to. However, I think I can say that it's been 38 years now for me of being in church on Sundays probably some awareness of what was actually being said for maybe 30 of those years. <laughs> the first date, I think I was pretty much just doing what some of you still do, is just survive on Sunday, on Sunday mornings. Hopefully that, that's not very often for you, but you know, uh, that's, that's the reality sometimes. Uh, you're probably not helped by uh, uh, the teaching uh, from time to time. But for 30 years of coming to church and sitting in church on Sundays, I am not sure that I ever heard this passage taught from the pulpit. And I'm not trying to even take a shot at my dad. My dad was the preacher for a lot of those years, a, cu a couple decades of them. But I, I didn't hear this, this taught. Now, I knew about this chapter, uh, was aware of it, and aware of all the other chapters. This is not a subject that comes up once in the Bible. I was aware, but it was not something that you'd run across on Sunday mornings. Um, what we're going to be looking at this morning uh, is the topic of church discipline. That's the formal title of it, church discipline. Now, uh, whenever I come across a passage where I know I'm gonna be talking in some way, shape, or form on church discipline, um, I'll, I will admit and confess that there is still you know, a sense of, of concern uh, for me because I'm a human being and uh, and I don't want to offend people. I don't want, certainly, you know, don't want people to leave our church. Thankfully, that hasn't happened in, you know, many years on a subject like this. But uh, that uncomfortableness with teaching on this subject is why I went 30 years and had never heard a sermon on it, really, to my knowledge. Um, I, you know, maybe there was one I wasn't paying attention about uh, somewhere in there. But, but to my knowledge, I, I, I never heard heard the sermon. So I, I understand that, and I don't have a word of, of condemnation about that, only to say you need to recognize that it is an uncomfortable subject, church discipline. When we talk about church discipline, we talk about discipline in the sense of maintaining something important. You know, if you're going to have a diet and you're going to make a commitment to eat healthy, uh, you're going to have to have some discipline to maintain that. It doesn't take a lot of discipline to have that first day or two, you know, for most of us, you know, uh, maybe some of us it does. Maybe the first, uh, we have trouble after the first meal. I don't know. But the first day or two is, a, but you get a weekend 
We're two weeks in, and it's tough to maintain that discipline. It's the same thing with anything you do. You start a new job when you're young, and it's your first real job, and you're waking up, and you're going in at, you know, early in the morning or late at night because it's your first job, and there's a sense of kind of, you know, enthusiasm about it, and then you get three or four weeks into it, and the temptation to call in starts to show up because it wears off, and it takes a certain amount of discipline to continue to approach that. It's true with anything in life. In the same way, it takes discipline for a church to maintain the integrity of a righteous standard of living and conduct among its members. It takes discipline. For the same reason that it takes discipline to maintain a diet, we as human beings do not naturally gravitate towards doing what is best for us. That is just the reality. And a lot of things. We don't naturally gravitate towards eating the stuff that's best for us. We don't naturally gravitate towards the most basic disciplines because they often require a suppression of what our natural instincts are toward, which is kind of self-gratification. And the same is true of sin. Matter of fact, I could say the same is true because of sin. And so when you are in a church community, that is to say when you have joined a church body, when you have committed yourself to a church in some sort of formal way, here we call it church membership, it takes a sort of discipline to maintain a standard of righteous conduct in that body of people. Unless, you know, it's, it's a, an incredibly small body of people, it's going to take some discipline because eventually you're going to have to deal with sin. And the Bible tells people how to deal with sin. And it talks about what kind of sin to deal with. And it puts tremendous limitations on the sort of judgments to be issued in the body of Christ. But when there is a judgment to be issued, it gives a a simple template for how to approach it. And it's not complicated. Some things are uncomfortable to teach because they're complicated. This is not uncomfortable because it's complicated. It's uncomfortable because... Whenever you have discipline in an area of life, it invites the opportunity to quit, doesn't it? I mean, you know you need discipline to maintain a diet, and yet eventually compromises are made. Uh, The pizza sounds too good, and if you're like me, that happens pretty often. Uh, And you compromise and you quit, or whatever it may be. Same is true in churches. Um, when I came into the ministry, uh, it's been almost 10 years now, uh, here at our church, we were dealing with the church discipline issue. And it was very tough. And I remember I went to a pastor in the Dayton area who I respected and just kind of one-on-one just laid out, hey, this is, what, this is what we're going through. This is what I'm feeling. You know, what do you think here? And And... We talked through what the Bible said and the circumstance, and, and he said, it's just not realistic to, to practice church discipline today in, in the culture that we live in. It's just not realistic to do that. So you have to, you have to approach these things in a different way. That was tough to hear because I think what he, mean, what he meant by it's not realistic is it's not realistic to practice church discipline and expect that everyone is going to accept it and no one is going to get upset and quit and leave, which is true. But ultimately, 
as a pastor and as a member of a church, you have to ask yourself the question, what is the goal here? What is the goal? Is the goal to remain culturally relevant and grow the numbers as high as you can get them? If that's the goal, then you're gonna do whatever you can do to keep the numbers that you have because it's tough to grow numbers if you're losing them at the same time. If the goal is to stay culturally relevant, then you are going to let the culture in all of its forms, celebrity culture, sports culture, political culture, dictate what the acceptable norms of society are and you're gonna have to get on board or shut up about them to some extent. But I believe that it's the pastor's job and it's a church's job to represent a different culture, an alien culture in the world in which we live. A culture that is not natural to this world and the only way to enter the church is to be freed from a culture of sin and corruption that is in the world and to commit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ who the Bible tells us by the power of his spirit works in our hearts to give us freedom from sin, the ability to pursue righteousness, sanctification, which is Christian spiritual growth, and to be in pursuit of that, which is alien to the rest of the world. And so these are tough, and, um, tough things, but also very important things. Um, and it's been one of, the, one of the stances, I think, of of our church over the last 10 years to try to explain what the Bible says about these things on a semi-regular basis and to try to live up to them, um, no matter what the cost is. Because we live in a world that is constantly compromising on what the Bible says in order to appease somebody. And ultimately, if God's word is not to be trusted, then what are we doing here? What are we doing here? Everything I know and believe about Jesus has come from God's word. If God's word is not trustworthy, then what is this? A social club? Sadly, maybe so to many people. But it's not the powerful world of God, word of God that can transform someone's life. So, you know, a few years ago, we had a Sunday a couple Sundays, where we talked through and explained church membership and um, Sunday morning Bible studies. Uh, I'm not going to do that here on, on uh, our venture through 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I might come back to it later this year and just do one Sunday to review those things, but I'm not going to do that here. Church membership is important. That will come up in the text here. This is part of this text, but I'm not going to do that this morning. Uh, at the same time, I would encourage you, if you need a refresher or a touch-up on these things, to go to our church's website, FBCNP, First Baptist Church, New Paris, and to, to search the message archive for the church membership recording and to spend a little time and, and listen to that sermon on church membership if you need a refresher on these things or if you want to think through them yourself. But... For this morning, we're going to do what we have tried to faithfully do for many years. We are going to continue expositionally, verse by verse, through the Bible. And we are in 1 Corinthians, and we have arrived at chapter 5. And the first verse of chapter 5 is a shocking verse. Uh, let's just read verse 1. 
It says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And then the English exclamation point. There's no uh, punctuation in the, in the original Greek language, but I think that the English translators, when they added the punctuation here, probably got it right because that phrase is a shocking phrase. Now, when Paul wrote these letters to churches, uh, he would write them for them to be read to the church. So someone would stand in front of everyone or sit in front of everyone, depending on the culture, and would hold the letter from Paul and would read the letter to everyone in the church. That's how these things were, were, uh, were, were relayed. And if you have uh, paid attention through the first four chapters... It has been about unity and about, you know, uh, Paul versus Apollos and Peter and having a right understanding of not having division and the importance of trusting Christ as opposed to worldly wisdom. Uh, We've talked about the Christian's eternal reward versus uh, making a name for yourself here on the earth. All these things through the first four chapters. And then you read that verse in chapter 5 And that would have been the mic dropper for the crowd, for sure. Because that is like a dramatic change in tone. For instance, let's just look at at verse 18 of chapter 4. Now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and I will know, not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And I think it would have gotten pretty quiet at that point in time in the reading because that is an uncomfortable thing to have read publicly. It's not comfortable to read it publicly now. And you can imagine he's reading it publicly and the man is there. And the family is there. And because that's the problem. This is, this is happening very publicly here. And now, you ever been in one of those meetings, you know, where uh, someone is getting kind of uh, pointed out for something that they've done that's wrong and everybody in the room knows exactly who did what and it's like, this is really uncomfortable, you know? Perhaps this could have been done one-on-one. Uh, we'll, get the, we'll get there. But this is what Paul says. Now, we don't know exactly what the sin is here. The relationship, there, there's been lots of speculation. Is this saying a, a, a son was with a mom or what? It doesn't matter. That's the point. There are only a couple options. One more gross than the other, both still gross. That's the idea here. They're both shocking because they're both really gross and definitely not okay. So it doesn't really matter what the details of the relationship were. Uh, let's not meditate on them for very long. It's, we'll keep it PG. But this was, a, this was a shocking thing and an extraordinarily gross thing. It was repulsive. And that's the point when Paul says, not even the Gentiles who worship their gods by engaging in prostitution do this kind of thing. They don't even... <laughs> The, you know, the lost person down the street who's paying a prostitute would think that this was gross, is what he's saying here. And the problem here is among you. That's it. This is happening among you. So it's not, this happened and it was dealt with. It was, this is happening 
among you and nobody's doing anything about it. <laughs> it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Sin happens in the world, but it should not carry on in the church without being dealt with. We'll get to the distinctions here. Christians are sinners. Christians will sin. I will sin. I might do something. It would be prideful of me to say, and it would be prideful of you to say, I am beyond engaging in any kind of sin that would be as gross and repulsive as this. I hope that that's true of myself, but I know what sin has been in my heart in the past, and I am not gonna make that promise that I am so far above reproach that I will never do anything nearly this heinous. That is my conviction, that is my aim, that is my goal. But Christians are going to sin. But there's a difference between sin followed by repentance and an acknowledgement of the consequences and sin followed by nothing but acceptance and hushed mouths and carried on without any repentance, without any turning away as if nothing had happened and everything is just fine because it's uncomfortable and nobody wants to call it out. There's a difference between those two things. Even the world knows there's a difference between those two things. Much of the discussion about sexual misconduct that's taken place in our world over the last three or four years has been a very loud acknowledgement among the world of what the Bible teaches that when misconduct takes place, someone should say something and call it out. And yet within the church, there are many Christian people all over the world who say, except here, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to acknowledge it. And Paul's saying that's ridiculous. And, you, and we know that's ridiculous, right? The word for sexual misconduct is pornea in the Greek. It is the Greek word from which we derive our term pornography. It simply is a catch-all phrase in the Greek language for gross sexual misconduct, which pornography is. Paul continues, verse two, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned, mourning would have been preferable, you're proud, that's what he's been dealing with for the first four chapters. You're proud of all of your Bible knowledge and all of your insight and all of your affiliations with Paul and Apollos and Peter. <laughs> Maybe this is why in chapter one, Paul said, I, I'm thankful I didn't baptize any of you except for a couple of, <laughs> you're proud as if you're on some higher spiritual plane than the rest of everybody while this is going on. There are a whole lot of people who learn a lot about the Bible and who have their spiritual experiences and think that they are on some higher spiritual plane because of what they know and their natural gifts to speak and to, you know, to, to, to persuade people. While sin is going on unrepentant in a person's life, there is nothing to be proud about. There is nothing to be satisfied with. He says, you should have mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. And you get the feeling of the appropriate course of action here. Taken away 
is the same term put away. It comes again to us here in verse 13 in a quote from the Old Testament at the end of the chapter. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Paul is saying, two verses in, what the obvious thing to do would have been. Remove this person who is carrying on in this unrepentantly from your fellowship. This is not okay. Notice the word mourn, do it with sadness. Not some righteous indignation, not some holier-than-thou, blasting, fiery condemnation. It's sad. Unrepentant sin should hurt the Christian with an inevitable sense of loss all the time. When you see someone with unrepentant sin in their life, that should bring sadness because pain is inevitable. It is inevitable. Sin destroys. Not always in the way that we think it does. But it does. You shouldn't be bragging about who you are, Corinthians. You should have been mourning. Verse 3, For indeed... I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present, him who has done this deed. That's a bold statement. We'll come back to it. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus How many times in those verses did you hear the name of Jesus? Uh, Three times and three verses. Bang, bang, bang. Paul is not claiming that he possessed some sort of spiritual superiority to be the ruler of all things that go wrong in every church everywhere. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this is so obvious and so easy to practically apply what Jesus has commanded that you need to do it immediately when you are gathered together. Paul is not asking them to deal with sin in the church. He is commanding them to deal with sin in the church. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 18, and we will see why the name of Jesus is invoked three times. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is speaking. We can look at verse 15. Here is the Lord giving instructions to his disciples. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, Matthew 18, 15, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So, step one in church discipline. If there is sin going on, go to the person privately. The first step is not to walk up to the pulpit and walk up to the stage and say, Marty, what you are doing is wrong. That's, no. Why? Because, we'll get to chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, but love does not rejoice in evil. It doesn't, it doesn't enjoy talking about evil. It doesn't, there should be a natural hesitation to even broach these things because it's evil and we don't want to talk about these things. Nevertheless, we are to persevere through those inclinations and go to the offending person, go to the sinning person, individually, one-on-one, privately, and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother, and it's over. 
What does that mean? If he listens, Ryan comes to me, sorry, first week back, and then bam, right out of the gate. Now, Ryan, comes, Ryan comes to me, and he says, look, you said this, and we both know it's not true. I heard you say this. We both know that that's a lie, and this is wrong. Ryan comes to me, and he says that to me, and I hear him, and I shake my head, and I say, yeah, you know, you're right. You're right. I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. I'm sorry. That's step one, acknowledging to Ryan. If I said it in front of other people, step two is going and saying, you know what? I said this. Ryan came and talked to me about it, and he's right. It, it's not true. I'm sorry. I, it was wrong. And it's over. It's over. I don't get some big demotion in the body of Christ. You know, I don't get knocked back three spiritual levels on the ladder to heaven. It, it, it's over. Verse 16, if he will not hear, take with you one or two more. Why? So we can all talk about sin together? No, you're taking a couple of people. So, Jesus says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. In other words, right now it is what you say versus what he says. He's not repenting. The person's not turning away from their sin. They're not acknowledging that, that what was blatant and obvious is blatant and obvious. Take one or two trusted, discreet people with you. Go have the conversation again. Let them be witnesses to the conversation. Let them be, have their ears and their eyes on it so that they can speak wisdom and this is not just a one-on-one -on -one thing. Take two witnesses because if they're still not going to listen to you once you've shown up with two other people, then we're not gonna ignore it and pretend, well, okay, I guess they just don't wanna listen. There's a next step. And when you get to that next step, it shouldn't just be one person versus what one person said. It should be what a few really trusted people are acknowledging about what took place when you met privately about this. You don't want to get to the next step, which is tell it to the church and have, wait a minute, no one talked to me about this. What are you guys doing here? You want witnesses that you tried to deal with this in an honorable, discreet, and personable way. And then they said no. So take two or three witnesses, verse 17. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, if at that point he won't listen to the body of the church, membership that's saying this is wrong, you need to repent and stop. If he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, Heathen is a pagan, okay? A tax collector was someone who was of the Jewish faith but had turned their back on the Jewish people. In other words, their practice of manipulating and exploiting people for their own financial gain was not in line with the faith that they proclaimed. That's why heathen and tax collector are relevant here. Now, heathens and tax collectors or unbelievers and open sinners are not people that we you know, refuse to speak to in the world, but we also don't pretend that they're a part of the body of Christ and that they're going to heaven when they die and that they're right with God and we acknowledge them and no, why? Because they don't believe in God, heathen, and there's open sin that they're engaging in in their life that's not consistent with the testimony of a person of God, tax collector. So what he's saying here, and notice how he uses the word church. What he's saying here is, Put them outside of the church. Not, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, among you. 
the interesting part about the word church here is Jesus had yet to die on the cross. He's speaking here in Matthew 18. His disciples had not gone out into the world to, you know, begin the church. The Holy Spirit of God had not come down on the day of Pentecost. None of that had started yet. Jesus is anticipating what we see in the New Testament right here. And he uses this word of ecclesia, the church. What is the church? Do you know what the word means in the Greek? It means a people who are assembled together for a purpose. If you're a part of the Christian church, you are assembled together for a purpose. To love God, to serve God, to build, to help build the church of God on the earth. You're assembled for a purpose. You should not be a part of that assembled purpose if you refuse to acknowledge sin in your life and turn away every brother that comes and tries to talk to you about it. You shouldn't be among the church. It's interesting that um, in verse 21 of Matthew 18, the very next discussion is about what? Forgiveness. The very next one. And this is where Jesus tells his disciples to their great shock that they must forgive their Christian brother who wants to repent and turn away from their sin every single time, no matter what. Which is the flip side of dealing with uncomfortable things. If I've stolen from John and John goes through this process of church discipline and I want to repent and make things right. And I say, you know, let me return it to you, John. I'm sorry. He has to forgive me. There's no option in this for him. If he doesn't forgive me, this parable makes it clear. He doesn't belong in the people of God himself. So Jesus is calling us to a very high standard of A, dealing with sin, and B, forgiving sin. Both things together. This is why Paul is invoking the name of Jesus over and over again when he's telling this church what to do. Listen to it again. For I indeed as absent in body but present in spirit have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. And in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ when you are gathered together along with my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ deliver such a one to Satan. What does that mean? To the world. Not in and among the church. Put them out of the church and back in the world where they belong. That's the idea. Satan's purvey, his arena is not this room. Is not among us. We are God's people. His purvey is in the world where self-gratification, sin, greed, covetousness, self-ambition, pleasure, those things are the chief pursuit. In here, we're in pursuit of Christ and what he has called us to. Outside is Satan's domain. Paul's not saying deliver him to Satan like execute him, beat him up, say awful things about him. It's put them outside. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That sounds brutal, but you're going to find pretty quickly the next phrase that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not telling, nor do we have any evidence of this ever happening anywhere. Take him outside and stone him and destroy his flesh. That's not what he means. The destruction of the flesh is what naturally happens to the sinner. That is the natural course of sin. 
the destruction of the flesh. He is using theological language to explain what happens to all of those who make Satan the king of their domain, who make sin a normal part of their life, the destruction of the flesh. And his hope is that by putting this person outside the church, and delivering them over to whatever natural consequences come because of their sin, that they will repent and be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, when you practice church discipline because someone is in some sort of unrepentant sin, they will not acknowledge it, they will not turn away from it, they're in the middle of an affair, and rather than acknowledge that the affair is wrong and repent, they say, there is nothing wrong with this, I will not repent of it, I will carry on no matter what. When a person is in that circumstance, they need to repent. And allowing them to maintain in the church as if nothing was wrong and nothing bad was taking place and everything was okay with us and okay with the Lord and this is just another Christian person, that is not an environment that, rec- that encourages thoughts of repentance. That is an environment that is affirming a behavior, not calling to repentance. Paul says, put them out of an affirming environment. Let them acknowledge and deal with the reality of their sin so hopefully they repent and they're saved before the Lord Jesus Christ. So when someone is put out of the church, it is not with maliciousness, it should not be, or antagonism, it is with mourning and a hope that a person will see the air of what they are doing and repent and return. Now, This is the part where most Christian churches say, well, yeah, but that doesn't really happen. It does. It does. We have seen this happen in our church over the last 10 years. It does. It requires the forgiveness of Matthew 18, the repentance of Matthew 18, the love of Jesus described to us in 1 Corinthians 13, it does happen. Which shouldn't shock the Christian that simply doing your best to earnestly obey God's word in these matters works and it is best. What is not best is pretending that sin isn't sin and letting people carry on and march themselves to eternal destruction while letting everyone in the congregation wonder in their minds, well, I guess what they're doing really isn't wrong. I guess it's okay for my kids. I guess it's okay for my family. I guess it would be okay for me to do the same thing. That is evil. I sat with a man and a wife years ago who were going to join our church in membership. And they told me, the man did, about his first wife who had left him and um, and she was sitting on one side of the sanctuary with the man that she was not married to but had left him for and he was sitting on the other sanctuary by himself and his kids and it went on for months and months and months and nobody said a word. Wow. That would be challenging. That's not supposed to happen if you love the person who's having an affair, you go and you talk to them because you love them. And you try to call them out of sin, whatever it is. You see what I'm saying? If you love the liar, you go and you talk to the liar. If you love the gossiper and the slander, you go and you deal with the gossip and the slander. 
If you love the rebellious kid who's ready to, you know, flip off mom and dad and run out on their own, you go and you talk to the kid. Love is not ignoring sin. It's just easier. Verse 6, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What he's saying here doesn't make a lot of sense to us because we don't talk about leaven and unleavened and bread and Passover and things like that. But he is making an analogy. Leaven was the, the yeast, the rising element that you would mix in with dough to where you'd put it in and what started as just kneaded dough would rise over time into bread, basically. Leaven in the Old Testament was used as a metaphor for contaminant, for sin in a person's life. Because when sin gains a foothold in a person's life, it doesn't stay small and contained. It expands and it does damage. Okay, So what he's saying here is purge out the leaven from among you so that it doesn't contaminate the whole thing. Because if you're not going to deal with sin in one person's life, you don't have a ground to stand on to deal with sin in another person's life or in another person's life or in another person's life. And if you're only going to deal with one kind of sin, then where does that leave you to address all the rest of sin? So get rid of it. When he says you are a new lump, what he's saying here is we are not just merely sinful people who get into the church and get patched up a little bit. That's not, this is not a self-help program. We're not Alcoholics Anonymous where you got a problem with alcoholism and you come in and you try to defeat alcoholism. Now, I don't have any bad words to say about that principle, but the church is more than that. The church is not simply trying to patch people up. The church is an entirely new thing, whereby we're dealing or attempting to deal with all sin, not just little elements of it, and to grow into a new thing. And he mentions the Passover because... In the Passover, the Jewish tradition was uh, that a, a mom would hide a little leaven in and around the house somewhere. Uh, and as a metaphor for dealing with sin, the children would have to go around the house and they would have to find wherever the leaven was hidden in the house, the, the, the rising element in the bread would be hidden in the house and they would have to move it out and they would get a, you know, some kind of a reward or recognize for finding it. It was a, you know, a silly baby, but it was meant to picture something important in the Jewish faith of dealing with sin at the time of the Passover. It was a metaphor for that. And so that's why the Passover is referenced here. And he says, therefore, let us keep the Passover feast of Jesus Christ because Jesus is our Passover. Jesus is the one who has dealt with our sin on the cross. Jesus is the one who has removed all the legal obligation of our leaven. Jesus is the one who's rooted this out in our life. So let us celebrate the Passover not with the old leaven Leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Integrity, honesty, truth. I don't see how you could be a Christian with any kind of integrity and have sin going on around you, very public and unrepentant, and, and not have the compassion to be honest about it. I don't see how you could be a person of integrity and do that. I just don't. 
I don't see how a doctor could be a doctor with integrity if he knew that there was something awful ravaging someone's body and decided it'd be too uncomfortable to share it. And so he just kept his mouth shut. If a person is extremely overweight and dealing with congestive heart failure, they may not want many people to talk to them about it, okay? But when they go to visit the doctor, it's not a very good doctor if he doesn't say anything. Let us operate with sincerity and truth. Verse nine, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. There had been a previous letter where Paul had said, don't keep company with sexually immoral people. Now he has a clarifying statement, okay? This is what he meant by it. You ever do that? Uh, I have from time to time. I said this, but this is what I meant, okay? Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, (laughs) or with the covetous people of this world, or extortioners in the world, or idolaters in the world. I didn't mean don't keep company with sexually immoral people who are in the world, since then, you would need to go out of the world. In other words, you would have to get on your spaceship and launch yourself into orbit because the world is filled with sinful people. And I wasn't saying, don't have any communication with sinful people. That's not what I meant. Don't have any fellowship. Don't talk with them. Don't eat with them. That's not what I meant. Verse 11, but now I have written to you, clarification, not to keep company with anyone Named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. This is church discipline. What he's saying is, do not affirm someone's profession of faith. Do not affirm someone's testimony. When they raise their hand, they say, I'm a Christian. Do not affirm that by carrying on in day-to-day living with them while they're in the middle of open sin as if nothing were wrong. Don't take the person who is drunk and who gets drunk routinely, who's getting wasted on the weekends, and pretend that this person who is calling themselves a Christian is in perfectly good standing even though He is blatantly drunk and imagining that there's nothing wrong. He's not covering it up. He's not disguising it. He's just doing it and pretending like it should be okay. Don't even keep company with such a one who would pretend that this isn't sinful and this is no big deal. You're not helping that person. You're not helping them practically in dealing with drunkenness and you're not helping them spiritually by pretending like this is fine and no big deal. How do you deal with it then? What did we read in Matthew 18? You go and you talk to the person one-on-one. If they acknowledge it's wrong and they want to work towards repentance, it dies there. It doesn't need to spread and become a thing. And and if they acknowledge it's wrong, they say, I want to repent. And the next week, they go out and get drunk. What do you do? You go to them and you talk to them one-on-one. And if they repent again and acknowledge it and say, you know, you're right. I know we just talked about this last week. I have to do better. I'm sorry. You forgive them and it dies there again. And if they go out the next week and they do it again, you go to them one-on-one 
And if they repent and acknowledge it's wrong and they ask for your forgiveness, you forgive them again. That's what Matthew 18 is saying when Peter says, how many times then do I have to forgive my brother? And Jesus says, over and over and over again. Why? Because fighting sin is hard. This doesn't mean that you take the person who is dealing with alcoholism and you call them to repentance and the moment they walk it back, the moment that they go out and get drunk, well, we're done with you, you're out. It's the opposite of that. Christians are called to fight sin. They're called to love each other and forgive each other. But what we cannot do is give up the fight and pretend that sin isn't sin because it might make things uncomfortable. That is not okay. Verse 12. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? <laughs> I'm a Christian pastor. It's not my job to go outside the church and to start saying, hey, I I don't like what you're doing here, so I'm not gonna to talk to you anymore. And I'm not okay with this sin, so I'm not gonna speak with you either. And I'm not doing any business with you because I don't like what I see here. And on, what have I to do with judging in the form of breaking fellowship or calling to repentance or what do I, I don't have any purvey there. Who's going to judge the world? It's not gonna be Reggie. <laughs> that, it's Jesus's concern with what happens with the sin that goes on out there. But inside the body of Christ, Christians have the mandate to practice church discipline out of love for one another. Do you not judge those who are inside? Of course. You, you ever go to a restaurant and you sit down at a table with your family and two tables over, there is this kid who is flipping out on, on mom and dad. I mean, just, maybe that's been your kid from time to time. <laughs> just, just losing it. And, and, and you're like, if that were my child, <laughs> you know, we would be marching to the bathroom right now or I'd do this or that. You ever do that? Do you actually go over to the table and grab that person's kid and march him to the bathroom? No. What have you to do with judging those who are outside your family? <laughs> Not much, you know. You get in big trouble if you try that. But if you're a parent, it is your job to take care of that inside your home. That's what he's saying. But those, verse 13, who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Folks, a commitment to church membership means something, okay? And we'll just wrap this up with this, okay? When a person commits to a church, what they are saying is, I am agreeing to join the fellowship of this church and I'm going to commit myself to the standards of Scripture. I'm going to commit myself to serving the Lord in and among this body, to loving the body of Christ, to trying to help other Christians here, both with things like sin and things that have nothing to do with sin. I'm, I'm committed to this body. And this body is committing to help me in that same way and to hold me accountable in that same way and to take my discipleship and my growth in the same seriousness as they would any other Christian here. It's a, it's a mutual commitment. That's what church membership is. 
the doors on Sunday morning, are ne- there's never going to be an ID card there where if you don't have a church membership card, you can't, you can't scan and get in. Okay? They're going to stay open. So if we're going to practice church discipline, there has to be some way for us to know who exactly here is a committed Christian to this local body and who isn't. Because I want people to come in and hear the word of God and that, that's, that's awesome, right? But if someone comes in and they never join the church, they never become a member, what exactly is the extent of my authority to your authority to hold them accountable to, to the word of God? Now, maybe if they're here long enough and we know them well enough, we would feel just kind of a natural inclination. But for us, church membership, church discipline go hand in hand. When we have a church membership, we're saying these are the people who are a part of our body and who we recognize we owe a commitment to and accountability to. And these are the people who, if they are walking away from the Lord in sin, we're going to we're going to deal with it one-on-one. We're going to deal with it privately. And if they just completely abandon it, our way of removing them is we're going to, in a church membership meeting on a Sunday evening, the next one we gather, we're going to remove them from church membership because of their sin and not wanting to be here and their refusal to listen to anybody and acknowledge that any of this is wrong. You can't be a member of the First Baptist Church of New Paris and live in ongoing sin for infinity. We will be gracious and give plenty of time and opportunity and meet and plead, but eventually you're going to be removed from church membership because this stuff is serious. And our hope is by removing you from church membership, you will recognize the seriousness of it and not live with the false impression that, well, you know, what I'm doing really isn't that bad. I'm a member of the First Baptist Church of New Paris. I'm a... No. So these things go together. And they're important. And they're in the Bible. That's why we're covering them on Sunday morning. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, 100% of the people in this room this morning are sinners. Um... I don't have a radar gun, Lord, to shoot at everybody's hearts to know who's a Christian and who's not. I I operate on professions of faith and commitments to your word and to your church. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who is not serving you faithfully, who has not surrendered their life to you, who is dealing with ongoing sin that they're pretending is no big deal, Father, my prayer is that they'll see the seriousness of sin to you in the words of your son, Jesus, that we've read this morning. And where these things are new and they haven't been discussed or talked about because they're uncomfortable in American culture to to practice them, Father, I just ask, give us strength and resolve. Help us to operate with a sense of compassion and a sense of mourning when we have to engage in stuff like this. No sense of pride or maliciousness, but a desire to see sinners repent. And I thank you once again for your word, for the clarity of how to operate. 
Father, I pray that we'll have the faith to do it. Bless our time now as we give to you and as we come to a close. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.